Welcome to In The Money with Shannon Rossick from Flyer Financial Technologies, the company that builds cutting-edge technology designed to solve asset and wealth management firms' toughest trading workflows. In this podcast, we help advisors and asset managers understand how technology is transforming the wealth tech sector. We'll cover how to leverage technology for faster, smarter investment decisions, mega trends, and more. Shannon draws from years of experience in the industry, along with guest experts to explore the biggest challenges and opportunities in the wealth tech game. Now, on to the show. Welcome to In The Money. I'm your host, Shannon Rossick, and I'm fortunate enough to be joined today by Chip Rome, founder and managing partner of Tiburon Strategic Advisors and the founder of the infamous industry events, the Tiburon CEO Summits. In this episode, Chip tackles the million-dollar question, what does the future of wealth and investment management look like? So let's jump in. Chip, thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. But before we even dive into this topic, I know you attended the University of Michigan for your MBA. So I have to ask, are you a football fan? (laughs) I'm a big football fan of the undefeated Michigan Wolverines. (laughs) I was going to say they are absolutely dominating this year so far. Do you follow the the pro league as well? Uh, To some degree. The Niners are having a little struggle this year. But, you know, I'm a big Michigan fan. I'm a medium 49er fan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like that description. I always laugh because one of my uh, good friends, obviously a huge Michigan fan as well. And he has the mug that I think it was the 12 and one season. He's like, I wake up every day and that one just sticks with me. <laughs> exactly. I feel his pain. <laughs> All right. So I'm actually going to start with the second hardest question since that was the first, but I just want to set the stage for our listeners. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background and why you ultimately do what you do today. Uh, sure. Yep. So uh, by way back, I grew up in Detroit, in Detroit, Michigan, a resort city, probably vacation there. Um, I went to Michigan, as you said. Um, I joined McKinsey and Company, a big management consulting firm out of business school, moved to New York and then moved overseas to London and Frankfurt and Mexico and Sydney, Australia for a long time. Ended up at Schwab, Charles Schwab, uh, in the mid 90s um, when Schwab just boomed. And I was the strategy guy at Schwab for several years when Schwab did really, really well. Um, and I formed Tiburon a couple of years later. And so for, I've run Tiburon now for 24 years. Uh, and Tiburon's had a lot of lies. We've done some consulting back in the day. We published a lot of research. As you referred to, Shannon, we, we started the Tiburon CEO Summits 20, 21 or 22 years ago now. Uh, we do weekly webinars. So just in general, we follow the wealth and investment management industry. So that's a great segue into my next question. So let's really dive into the meat of this conversation. Since we did promise listeners, uh, you'd break down the trends in the wealth and investment management industry. So what does that ultimately mean in Tiburon terms? And how are you conducting this research? Okay, so we define wealth and first of all, wealth and investment management are two different things. I want to be clear about that, two different phrases. So wealth management to us is serving a high net worth or moderate net worth or even mass market consumer with their investment or wealth needs. Uh, And investment management includes that same thing, but also the institutional world, pension plans, endowments, foundations. So so we follow what we broadly would say is wealth and investment management. To some degree, that gets you into private banking or into life insurance or other areas that kind of circle around the bullseye of what we focus on. Uh, But in the big picture, we follow wealth and investment management. Um, And then the second, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Um, so I said, what does this mean in Tiburon terms and how do you ultimately conduct this well, research? How do, we, how do we conduct the research? So 
So we subscribe to everything you can possibly subscribe to. So any data set, any magazine, any publication, anything, we read everything you can get your hands on. And then we field proprietary studies. Um, we Again, we have the benefit of having the Tiburon CEO Summit that attracts, lo and behold, CEOs to attend. And so we get to survey the CEOs in the industry every six months. So we have a fair bit of proprietary research and a lot of tertiary or third-party research. And I know we're going to be breaking down about five trends uh, in this episode. And I've heard you make the case that Gen X is the big investor population right now. You know, how should the industry be considering these different investor segments? Yeah. So let me clarify the exact words. Gen X is not the big investor population. Gen X will make the most money in the next 10 years. So I think it's super important to focus on. So in numbers, you know, you could argue that the baby boomers have the most money today. That's factual. You could argue that millennials are the biggest population, number of people. Uh, but if you really are focused on wealth and investment management, again, that's the Tiburon focus. So if you are focused on wealth and investment management, it doesn't matter who has the money today. It matters who's going to get the money over the next 10 years. And so Gen X, based on their age, their earning capacity, uh, plus they'll be the inheritors of baby boomer wealth, the Gen X generation will save and invest the most money over the next 10 years. And that's the point I'm trying to make, because I think everyone focuses on baby boomers. Most advisors are baby boomers themselves and have grown up serving baby boomers. And then these millennial kids is what they think of them as, you know, which is a big population. But millennials collectively don't have a lot of money. So here, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a two, uh, one minute of just factoids. So in dollars today, boomers have about $34 trillion today in money, $34 trillion. Gen X is about $12 trillion, so one-third of that. And millennials have about $2 trillion, so one-sixth of that. So millennials have very little money today relative to Gen X and relative to boomers, right? Over the next 10 years, though, Gen X will save and invest an incremental $33 trillion. Boomers will save and invest another $13 trillion. And millennials will be in third place still, even in the incremental 10 years, they'll be in third place. So I think we're, the industry has a little bit of a habit to go baby boomer, baby boomer, baby boomer, then jump on to millennial. And Gen X specifically is the 10-year opportunity right now. Interesting. So I guess in your opinion, then, how should the industry be considering these other segments, though, if, if you know, the, their eye is on the ball right now with Gen X, but, you know, I'm, I myself am a, am a millennial and, you know, we argue a lot that we continue to be underserved, underrepresented in the industry. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts moving forward there? Are you defending the, the millennials? Is that what we're doing right now? <laughs> okay. I mean, so, I can't really defend us, but I try. <laughs> so there, there's really two things to think about here. It depends on what the lifetime of a business is, right? So if I'm a 65-year-old advisor about to retire, frankly, he or she doesn't listen, need to listen to me or you in that case, right? He can ride out the rest of his career or her career saving, serving baby boomers, right? If someone wants to build a big business over the next 10 years, it's going to be all about Gen X. That's, you know, millennials just won't have enough money. You can, even if you did really, really well, they won't have that much money over the next 10 years. But if you want to be in business in the long haul, if you want to build a, you know, a free changing company a la Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity or someone, you'd be around 50 or 100 years or whatever, then you absolutely have to be focused on millennials. So the, the way I think about it is if you're really trying to build that um, you, know, you know generational company that, that's going to stick for the long haul. You got to figure out how to grab the millennials today, right now, because once the millennials land somewhere, uh, they, they're not going to change just when they get more money. There's a, there's a, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. I repeat it all the time. But back in the '90s, when I worked at Schwab, Merrill Lynch used to get quoted all the time saying, "Oh, when." 
when baby boomers get more money, they'll come to us. They'll dump Schwab and they'll come to us. Well, today, Schwab has far more assets than does Merrill Lynch, right? They never left Schwab is what happened, right? And I, I think it's kind of naive. And so in today's terms, you have firms like Acorns and Stash and Robinhood and eToro and all these that are gathering up the millennials. I'm sure those are savvy management teams that will try to hang on to those clients over the long haul, provide them more services over the long haul. And so do the clients ever leave? And so the question, if you want to build a generational company, is even if Chip Rome says your dollar and cents opportunity is Gen X for the next 10 years, maybe you also need to go gather up the millennials today with some lower cost service model so you can hang on to them later. Makes sense. And I just want to shift gears a little bit, you know, speaking similar vein, but when it comes to kind of the current investment equation, we've seen this explosion of ETFs, direct indexing, really packaged as managed accounts. You know, how can wealth managers ultimately compete with this changing environment? Yeah. So a couple of things there. I would say that the trend is actually bigger than even you're saying. I think the trend broadly is a, uh, is a twofold trend towards indexing or passive management plus low cost management, right? So if you have an expensive index fund, you still don't gather any money, right? You actually have a cheap index fund. Like for instance, yesterday you might've saw Schwab announced a new municipal ETF and they undercut Vanguard. They're at three basis points. Now their cost is three, not wow. 30 or 300. It's three basis points, right? So there is a race to the bottom in the investment world today, right? So I, I don't think we're going to pay much um, for investment management over the long haul. People are going to, whether they invest in ETFs or low-cost index mutual funds or direct indexing that you brought up, all of those things will end up being ex extremely low cost. So then the, um, the advisors in the world or possibly the investment management firms in the world have to figure out what to do about that. I think the advisors have two paths. They can go down certain investment paths that are still active, like uh, uh, ESG investing or sustainable investing is super popular right now. There's some naysayers, but it's still super popular. Uh, alternatives investing, investing in hedge or venture capital or private equity or private credit or real estate, that's mostly an active business, right? There's, there, there's structured notes is an interesting growing business. So there's a bunch of active things still you can be involved in on the investment side and or as an advisor, as a wealth manager, you can choose to refocus on financial planning and estate planning and taxes and things like that and earn your, earn your wages, earn your value, not doing investment management, but doing financial planning and financial advice. And I think the industry, because the stock market roared ahead for 20 years and baby boomers were socking away a lot of money, a lot of financial advisors today are truly investment advisors. They say the term financial advisor, but they don't do a whole lot other than the investments. And I think that that's going to have to change, you know, because at the end of the day, the consumer can go to Betterment or Wealthfront or whoever for 25 basis points and hire someone to manage their index funds. So if, you're, if all you're doing is managing index funds or ETFs, you're probably not worth 100 basis points. You're probably worth 25. So I think you'll see advisors either go down the alts path, another active path, or go down the financial plan path. And I want to go back to direct indexing. It's obviously dominated headlines lately, but it feels like it should be bigger than all the headlines we see. But it's obviously here to stay, correct? Yeah, I think it's here to stay. But I do I, I do find, I don't know whether it's journalists or conference speakers or whatever, they like to 
um, exaggerate trends, right? So <laughs> direct, direct indexing has about $350 billion in it, right? About a quarter of that is one company, Parametric, which is now owned by Morgan Stanley, uh, but it's about $350 billion business. ETFs are about a $6 trillion business, you know, $6 trillion versus $350 billion. I think we kind of lose perspective. You get up in billions and trillions and you kind of start thinking those are the same number. Those are not the same number by any means, right? Direct indexing is a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, Parametric and Aperio and a couple of other companies have been around a long time, maybe 20 years. But people didn't focus on direct indexing until the last 18 or 24 months. And so it's now growing quite nicely. And I believe direct indexing will stay. But direct indexing also has some downsides. I mean, I don't know if you have a direct indexing account. But if you have a direct indexing account, your brokerage you know, statement comes in a UPS box because you have a million confirms, you own all kinds of stocks. There's some downsides to not simply owning Vanguard or BlackRock's S&P 500 fund, which is a real simple investment for a lot of people. So unless you're really going to do the tax harvesting and you have a tax situation that lets you do that, then direct indexing is starting to be a little bit oversold in my mind. So yes, it will boom, but are we maybe talking about more and or maybe the benefits don't really accrue to 90% of the people and we're starting to apply it to everyone? So I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't think it ever, the ETF market will, will be substantially bigger forever. Nope, that, that makes sense. I appreciate that perspective. So in your opinion then, based on this environment, what channels are currently winning within this space? Yeah, so at the end of the day, if you measure data, I'm a data junkie, so I grew up at McKinsey. I don't really have opinions. I have data. You know, um, The only two channels that are growing um, are the RIA channel uh, and the discount brokerage retail arm channel. Uh, and so let's take them in reverse order. So the discounters are growing. The discounters, uh, spe- specifically Schwab and Fidelity, also happen to be the custodians for the RIAs. So they pick up a lot of assets that way as well. But put that aside for a second. Their retail arms are doing quite well. And so I would throw Fidelity Retail, Schwab Retail, even Vanguard Retail. They're not really technically a discount brokerage firm, but same idea. The B to C direct-to-consumer model, you know, Robinhood, Acorns, the ones I mentioned before, Stash is a good example. All these firms are just hoovering up uh, clients and accounts and money today. So their retail business is alive and well. It's not discount brokerage the way the full service brokers try to make you think it is. It's not this no help, you're abandoned, you, you know, you can't talk to anyone. You know, you can walk in a Schwab branch, you can you can call a Schwab rep on the phone, you can interact on the internet with them. You, you, can, you can get a lot of help and advice through what is traditionally called a discount brokerage firm. And so those firms have uh, done very, very well. And then the RIA channel has done very, very well. And specifically, it's the top 50 or 100 RIAs that are either growing organically and or acquiring and growing inorganically. They're just uh, hoovering up other advisors. But that top 50 or 100 RIA firms, I just have humongous growth rates right now. So those are the two channels that seem to be winning right now. So within this too, I I feel like we have to talk a little bit about embedded finance as well. We're starting to see that topic bubble up a little bit more. What are your insights there? Yeah, so I, I think people define embedded finance a lot of different ways, but I think at the end of the day, you know, like banking more so than even in wealth and investments is really just a service. Like, why do we have branches and why do we have thousands of banks? And it's, it's the most archaic industry I've ever seen, right? I mean, banking should be something you do on the internet. It's perfectly obvious, right? And therefore, why do we need to go to a bank's website? Why can't I bank at Yahoo or bank at Google or bank at Facebook or fill in my favorite app that I'm on, right? Uh, so I think embedded finance for banking is completely intuitive to me. 
it's a little less intuitive to me when it becomes wealth management. Because again, if you're just if it's just investment management, here's my money, draw me a pie chart and manage my money. That's embedded. You can make that into embedded myths. When it starts becoming, uh, I need some help and advice. How much car insurance should I have, or should I refinance my student loan, or you know, how do I set up a trust account for my kid? I'm not sure that's embedded finance. I think then you, you want to be talking to someone and working with someone. So, so I do believe embedded finance, especially on the banking side, to some degree on the uh, on the insurance purchase side, like term insurance. Again, could be embedded everywhere. Trading stocks can be embedded everywhere. Um, uh, you know, robo advice can be embedded everywhere, but true wealth management, not sure that's going to be embedded. So that's, that's how I think about it. And speaking of this digital shift, obviously, you know, banking online, working in apps, we can't talk about current trends without bringing up how COVID-19 really sped up that hybrid delivery movement. Uh, what can you share there? Yeah, I think uh, COVID sped up th two or three different tech trends that got much faster, right? Here, I'll, I'll try to separate three different ones, one being four different ones. So one is lead gen. Advisors that used to maybe network at the local you know, charitable events or have a, a seminar at the local holiday, and you couldn't do those things during COVID. And so those things became online marketing. So lots of advisors now have webinars and have you know, to buy in lead flow from Smart Asset or Wiser Advisor or Zoe Financial or all these firms that sell lead flow. So one is lead jet moved more tech, more towards technology. Uh, two is delivery to clients. Um, you know, the Zoom platform, you just look at the stats of how many people have a Zoom account today. You know, everyone's grandma is more comfortable on Zoom than she used to be. Everyone <laughs> likes Zoom. I mean, again, the, the idea of driving to an advisor's office to have your one hour meeting is an archaic concept again. I mean, why can't that be done online? You know, maybe when you open an account or maybe when you're working on your will or something, it feels like you want to be in person. But the vast majority of time, I think Zoom delivery or Microsoft Teams or whatever your platform favorite is, um, I think delivery is that. Number three is um, is work from home, remote workers, right? So a lot of advisory firms and wealth managers now are going to hire the best people wherever they are. And if those people work via Zoom, so be it. I think that's how it should be. And then lastly, fourth in tech would be advisor tech platforms. So if you've watched the firms like InvestNet and Orion and others have just gobbled up all the single point applications to make their platforms more comprehensive so that an advisor with one sign on could navigate between, say, financial planning and CRM and managed accounts or something like that. So I think in all four of those trends, we've seen a speed up because of COVID. It put people at home. It made you figure out how to do things technologically as opposed to in person. How did Tiburon approach it? Um, how did Tiburon approach COVID or uh, the movement to technology or both? Just the, the, the hybrid approach, the new landscape since COVID. Yeah, so our world is pretty simple. We, uh, you know, we work from anywhere we want all the time. Uh, I spend a lot of time overseas and dial in for Tiburon webinars there, and I think it works fine. So uh, I, I think uh, Tiburon's a virtual business at the end of the day. I think we've already got this one down. Oh, so you were built for this. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So fifth trend, we have to talk M&A. You alluded to it in your previous answer, yeah. but we've really seen this trend in the industry of consolidation. But even as companies race to consolidate, they are learning that scale isn't really enough. So in my opinion, they're kind of like three market forces at play. You're seeing that increased private equity interest, incumbents continuing to search for higher growth adjacencies, and kind of that ongoing need for technological innovation. So what are your thoughts around the recent M&A environment? 
Yeah, so I would, uh, uh, had if I hadn't heard your three explanations, <laughs> I, I would have said there's two drivers of it going on. One is the aging of the advisors themselves. So a lot of them have a succession planning issue. Uh, you know, frankly, it's a good succession planning issue because they've grown up as single principal models. They might have a couple hundred million dollars of assets under management, and they have no employee who can acquire their business anymore because it's now actually has some value and they can sell that business. So you have you have a glut of advisors that really are just starting to retire right now. And over the next 10 or 20 years, the number of sales is going to go through the roof because these advisors are going to retire is what's going to happen. So I think that's a big driver. And the other one that you did say, private equity is lined up at the door of this industry right now. So I forget the number. I think we can count 60-something private equity firms that now have invested in the RIA space, 60 wow. of them. And I could probably name another 30 or 40 that are still hanging around the edges looking for what, what, they're, they're, what they're looking for is a platform bet. They want to find one firm that has great technology, great people, maybe young principals that they can own and then grow and acquire more into that. So they think of that as like their beachhead or their platform or whatever it is. You've got to find that first firm to buy, right? Once you find the first firm to buy, buying others and attaching them on is a lot easier, right? So I'd say there's about 60 firms invested already, another 30 or 40 looking for an investment. Private equity has a lot of dry powder right now. They're going to invest heavily. They love this industry. You know, it's a recurring fee revenue business. This is this is exciting for the private equity world. So because of the the succession planning problem for advisors, private equity is there with bags of money. I think this is going to be a long trend of acquisitions. Nope, that makes absolute sense. And I know we've covered uh, five trends already, but is there anything else that, that you or Tiburon are watching uh, closely over the next couple of months and even into the new year? Um, I mean, I think those are the biggest trends. I think, you know, advisors, when I think about the wealth space, it, advisors have two or three big needs. One is lead gen. You know, if you're, you're a vendor to the industry and you can help advisors get leads, that's a big deal to them. Uh, two is benchmarking. You know, do I run my business efficiently? Do you know what's my profit ratio or what's my you know how many clients per advisor? Things like that. I think benchmarking data is super useful to advisors. Uh, then succession planning. Help me sell my business or monetize my business. Lend money to someone to buy my business. Whatever it is, but somehow facilitate the M and A transaction. Those seem to be the three uh, things they need to uh, they need help with. They need that, that can that vendors can help with. I, I think those are advisors' challenges right now. And not to go off on a tangent, but I, I've always thought the succession planning realm was interesting. And because I've been hearing about this for years, that advisors continuously struggle with that, don't have plans in place. What is kind of the holdup there? Uh, I think it's a lifestyle business. And I think a lot of, the, again, the, the magazine, you know, our article writers and the conference speakers fail to fail to remember um uh, fail to take into account, let's say, uh, the practicalities of an advisor. So here, mm -hmm. let, let me just paint you a picture. A, an advisor is 65 or 70 years old. He or she lives in Iowa or lives in Michigan where I grew up, right? Um, you know, they have $100 million. They charge 1% a year. So they have a million dollars of revenue. So they, you know, have a couple of secretaries and a small office and a copy machine, right? They go home with six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 every year. Now, tell me again why he or she needs to sell their business. I don't know they need to sell their business. I mean, they play golf every day and they, you know, I think it's a life, it's a very easy business to stay involved in as you get older. And I don't know, it's not like 
It's not like you're a construction worker and, you know, at some point your body's just not capable of doing your job anymore. I think, you know, it's pretty easy to just keep doing what you're doing. Now, I think there is a fiduciary obligation advisors should think about of if you do unfortunately die, then what happens to your clients? And you should have some solution for that. Now, maybe that's a succession plan or maybe that's just a contingency plan that you go down to the advisor down the street and shake hands and make a deal and say, if I die, you take over my clients. And if you die, I take over your clients and we should meet those clients along the way and share paperwork. And also we know them when that day comes, but maybe I just keep working until I'm 90 years old because I can in this industry. And so I think it's hard to sell your crown jewel, your baby, the thing you built. And I think a lot of advisors go slow because of that. Well, First off, I just have to say, I am incredibly impressed that you covered, you know, these five major trends in such a time efficient ma manner. But as we wind down here, I always love to wrap up my episodes with some fun questions. So if you are willing to share, uh, I love to ask folks, what's one thing that people don't know about you or something that might surprise them? Ooh, um, let's see. So I'll, I'll tell you one that's really two. So one A and one B, <laughs> I lead two annual trips. Uh, with uh, two different friends of mine. Uh, one is to uh, hike national parks. We call it the skip and chip. I'm the chip half of that. The skip and chip <laughs> excellent adventures. And so we take 50 or 60 friends and go to Glacier National Park in Montana or up in Alaska or somewhere and do a big 25, 30 mile hike. Uh, and so that's called the skip and chip excellent adventure. I've been doing that about 10 years. And then about uh, six or seven years ago, we started a charitable fund at Tiburon and we build houses for a less fortunate people down in Mexico every every February. Uh, we build them, it is a very humble, small house, but we can build, uh, 10 or 12 of us can build a house in two days now. And so we take, uh, 50, we took 50 something people last year, we're gonna try and take 100 people this year and build six houses in two days for six unfortunate families just south of Tijuana, Mexico. So mm -hmm. two different things that I uh, spend a lot of time uh, put some passion into. Oh my gosh. Well, that's absolutely incredible. And I feel like Skip and Chip should be a podcast title or like a, a show. You need to like shoot a pilot or something. That. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So one more question, yep. um, kind of a similar vein, but yep. um, you know, what is the best compliment you have ever received? Best compliment I've ever received. Um, I'll tell you what I gave yesterday. I, th I think my son is the most empathetic human being I've ever seen. Right? I mean, you know, the, the little boy in class that no one wants to talk to or the, you know, the one with a physical challenge or the one with a learning difficulty is always my son's best buddy. You know, just kind of goes and hangs out and helps that kid. So it's just such a good thing to see empathy in this world. So, um, so I'll, I'll, I gave that one out. I know you asked the other question, but um, I don't know. I don't know what the best one I ever got was. That's the best one I've given recently. I, I was very proud of it. Oh, as you should be. That's We definitely need more of that in the world right now. So that's very encouraging to hear. Well, Chip, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and getting to know you a little bit better. But feel free to tell our listeners where they can find resources and learn more about Tiburon. Uh, okay, so Tiburon, Tiburon's legal name is Tiburon Strategic Advisors, uh, Advisors, O-R-S. Uh, our website is Tiburon Advisors. Tiburon's a city in San Francisco, by the way. So it's a city outside San Francisco. For those of you who speak Spanish, it's the word shark in Spanish, if you don't know that. So it's the point of land in the in the San Francisco Bay that theoretically sharks are near. I've never seen a shark in 25 years, but <laughs> theoretically. 
Uh, but you can go to our website. Again, you can read about the Tiburon CEO Summits. Frankly, you could also read about the Tiburon Impact Adventures. That's building houses in Mexico. You can read about the Skip and Chip Excellent Adventures. You know, your listeners can actually get our weekly research release for free. Um, you know, so again, all that's on our website, tiburonadvisors.com. Fantastic. Thank you for that information. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast and on all major podcasting platforms and follow Flyer Financial Technologies on LinkedIn and Twitter at FlyerFT or visit our website at flyerft.com to learn more. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to In The Money, the show that delivers advisors, asset managers, broker dealers, and other technology service providers the knowledge they need to navigate this industry. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Flyer Financial Technologies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.